Right, everyone grab their Bibles and Philippians. This is the uh, the fifth one in uh, on this book. <clears throat> and uh, you're actually wanting <coughs> chapter two. And uh, basically what we're... Um, what we're going to do tonight is, is, is take chapter 2, verse 12, and we're going to work our way uh, down towards the end of the chapter. And uh, basically, what we've been <clears throat> seeing in the last couple of studies is that in chapter 2, what Paul is doing, he's jumping between two thoughts, all right? And his argument is this. He's saying to them, this is what Jesus is like, all right? So he's taking it from all different angles. This is what Jesus is like. Therefore, if it's true that Jesus lives in you, and it is, this is what we ought to be like. And that's the argument. He's jumping between two things. He's saying Jesus is like this, Jesus is in you, so this is how we ought to be as Christians. And uh, in the last study, we saw how Paul was really homing in on the fact you know, that Jesus, he, he laid aside everything he had in heaven as God himself and he came down he was willing to be a man and a servant and what Paul has been saying is serve each other that's the that's the way that Jesus is and that is the heart that we ought to be having not not me 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 but Jesus first and then other people and of course with ourselves coming last and uh, we finished off at verse 11 uh, let's, let's just uh, read verses 12 and 13 to start with and he's still following on. Remember that really from uh, chapter 1 verse 27 down to chapter 2 verse 18, where we'll get to tonight, it's all one, one train of thought. One train of thought. Uh, it would have actually been better if uh, chapter 1 had finished at verse 26 and chapter 2 started there and gone down actually to verse 18. But I mean, the people who did the Bible decided not to do it like that. But you know, this is all one train of thought, if you like, a paragraph, as it were. And in verse 12, following straight on, right, remember he said Jesus was prepared to put all that aside, he gave up himself, he renounced himself, and he put us first, all right? And that's the example that Paul has given to them. And he says, therefore, obviously for that reason, you know, that has happened, so therefore make sure you do this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there are two ways I want to sort of um, attack that. And the first one is this, that Paul says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. And, uh, and what Paul is saying here, that, that, that seeing as they can't get to him, because I mean, he, he'd been a real help to them. You know, he spent time with them in the past. And what he's saying is that he's saying, look, because I'm not there, and because you can't lean on me, Therefore, work all the harder at following the Lord. He said, you worked hard when I was with you, all right, but n now I'm not there. You can't lean on me now. So therefore, because I'm not there, you've all got to work much the harder at following the Lord. And what we need to see here is that it is obviously perfectly okay as a Christian to lean on leaders you know, to lean on them. It's one of the reasons that God has put them there. 
But what is important to see is that the idea of a leader in the church is that the whole time they are to be transferring a dependence on themselves away from themselves onto the Lord. Okay. So that lean on people and leaders, yes. But the idea is that all the time you're getting more to the point where you can stand on your own. All right. And the effect of a good leaders upon people who are following the Lord is that they will be more and more independent and be able to stand on their own two feet. Go to Ephesians and we'll see Paul's great, you know, this burden that he's got for them. He's saying, I don't want you to be dependent on me all the time. We're going to see he's saying, grow up in the Lord, be your own people in Jesus. Don't all the time, you know, be dependent upon other people. He said, I'm not with you, so therefore work all the harder at working out your salvation. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, if we just start reading from verse 11, and again this is Paul writing, albeit to a different church, and he's talking about the gifts and the ministries, you know, that are available in the church. <clears throat> and he says, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, what tends to happen in most Bibles, there are commas there in the wrong place. Now, I'm going to read it, all right, based on what the commas do, all right? For the equipment of the, you know, he says there are apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, what that is tend to saying is that the leaders are there and their job uh, is to equip the saints and then their job is to do the work of the ministry and then their job is for building up the body of Christ. And so you get this idea that many churches move in, that leaders are there to do everything. You know, so they build up the body, they do the work of the ministry, blah, 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 they do the lot. Now, that's what it comes out if you take notice of the commas. Greek doesn't have any commas. Let's wipe the commas out and see what comes out now. And his gifts were that some shall be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. Now you see the difference? A leader is not there to do all the work of the ministry. Elders are there to equip the people in the church so that they're doing the work of the ministry. Now can you see the difference? Alright. And he goes on to say, uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, he's falling over himself with adjectives and things here, you see. That we may be no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's the last fad, you know, last time he went to All Saints, all right? By the cunning of men by their craftiness in deceitful wiles, because that's what it is, all these fads. It's craftiness, it's deceit. It's not the word of God, it's not the word of God. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working well, makes growth and upbuilds itself in love. Now, can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying leaders are there 
to enable people to grow up in the Lord and to therefore be serving the Lord in all the ways that you can as you mature in the Lord. All right, it's maturity again. Paul's great burden was that I want everyone to grow up in the Lord and to be mature. And what we're seeing here is that leaders are there to enable people to do that. But the point is this, if leaders do everything, how can anyone grow up? Can you see? Paul didn't teach that eldership is there to do it all. You know, it's not like W.H. Smith do it all, all right? They're just there to enable everyone else to really grow in the Lord so that the gifts and the ministries are given throughout everybody. This is the point. It's not a monopoly of elders doing everything. It's so the body is growing up and that everyone is playing their part. But in order for that to happen, all right, you've got two factors that have to meet. Only when these two things join together is it going to be viable to have what Paul is talking about here. Remember what he has said to them. He says, right, I'm not with you now. He says, you worked hard when I was with you. But now I'm not with you, work even harder. He didn't say hibernate until I get back. He said, now I'm not there, work even harder. Paul didn't expect everything to stagnate because he wasn't there. Why not? Because Jesus was there. And that is what he was wanting people to see. They had everything they needed in Jesus, whether they had him, Paul, or not. Now the two things that have got to come together here are firstly, good leadership. That's the first thing you've got to have. Now, by this, what I mean are leaders who, in their dealings in the church, they are encouraging people to stand on their own two feet. Can you see? What they're trying to do is not just keep people dependent on them, but they're trying to guide people so that eventually those people are going to be able to stand on their own in the Lord. I.e., a leader can bring people into a dependence upon himself. That is wrong. A leader must get people away from that and getting more and more looking to Jesus. Just go to 1 Peter. One Peter in chapter five. I will just read, read from verse one, and uh, this is Peter talking to um, elders. He said, "I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder." I mean, these guys knew what they were talking about because they were elders as well. So he said, "I exhort the elders as a fellow elder uh, and a partaker in the glory." He says, "Tend the flock of God that is in your charge," and that tend it's poimeno. It means to feed, to feed. All right. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples. Now, some churches, all right, the leadership that they've got is that the leadership is incredibly dominating. Can you see? Everything revolves around the leadership and they rather sort of like lord it over people in the sense that what they're trying to do is to shut everyone in the church up to themselves so that people can't make a move without the leaders. Now that's the opposite to what a good leader ought to be doing. 
And what Peter says here, he says, no, don't do it like that. He says, do it by being examples. Now, the idea is this, that a leader demonstrates by advice and personal example how to do it. That's what a leader, he's there to show, look, this is how you grow in the Lord. He's there to show how to do it. But then the people have got to have the freedom to then be able to get on and do it. Do you see the point? But if leaders dominate people, then there's no freedom for other people to be doing what the leaders are showing them. I mean, the point is this. Every Christian has got Jesus. Every Christian has Jesus in them. Every Christian has a relationship with Jesus that is personal. Every one of us has that. Now, if that is true, then each one of us are far better equipped than we often think. Is he? This sort of, oh, well, there's nothing I can do, and this, oh, you know, it will never work for me. It's crazy. Each one of us has Jesus, all right? So, therefore, each one of us have got what we need to grow in the Lord. But the danger, as far as leadership goes, is that you end up, and often in a quite well-meaning way, but you end up imposing almost an authoritarian servitude on the people. Examples, and I, you know, I know there are people here who have come across this kind of thing in churches. For instance, all personal decisions have to be checked out with the elders. I mean, there are people here, they've come across that. Can you see? And there are churches where fundamentally you're not free to make a move, you're not free to decide something, uh, you, you can't change jobs, you, you can't even go on holiday in some churches without checking that with the elders first. Can you see? Because there's that basic mistrust of the people. You know, the elders don't trust them. So therefore, everything has got to be checked out with elders first. Now, the point is, how on earth, how on earth can you grow in that situation? You can't. Now then, what elders are there for, if, if you've got to decide something and it's important, then obviously you are totally free to get any advice you want to help you make up your mind. But the point is, elders are not there to make up your mind for you. They're there to give you the guidelines how to seek God, but the decision must be yours. The moment that everything has got to be checked out with the elders, you've got a bondage in the church and you can't grow. Uh, another example is that guidance only comes through elders. Now, there, there are some churches, that's how they work, that you tend to have, you know, sort of like the group of men at the top of the church and they're the elders. And uh, then under them you've got pastors, and like, you know, and they like the word shepherds. And everyone in the church is under a shepherd, is he? And God speaks to them through their shepherd, all right? And he's getting what God is saying to him about them through the elders, can you see? And then, of course, the elders, they've got apostles over them who travel all over the country and telling everyone what God's word is, you see. Now, again, as soon as you accept the idea that guidance only comes through the leaders, there is no possible room for growth. No possible room. The leaders are doing everything. If, if the leaders do your thinking and make your mind up for you, that's not growth. That's being a zombie. Simple as that. That's having a ring through your nose. And you will get nowhere. Okay. Um, however, if there's something you're praying about and you need guidance or you think you've had guidance, then 
If you think it's going to help, by all means, check that out with people who are older in the Lord or something. But any idea that guidance only comes through the elders, again, it's a servitude. There's no room for growth. Uh, another example would be these churches where if you think you've got a tongue or a prophecy or something or a vision, be it of a rice pudding or whatever, um, you've got to go up to the elders and you've got to ask their permission. You know, can you see? So, I mean, my mind boggles, actually, at how these churches work. The mechanics must be amazing that during the meeting, there must be con this continuous stream of people popping up off their, their seats, sort of belting out the front, <laughs> you see, and there's either a nod of the head or a shake of the head. If it's a nod, they belt back to their seats, get up and do whatever it is. But if it's a shake of the head, they sort of slouch back and then the slouch, that's the last you hear from them. I mean, the mechanics of that are so crazy, aren't they? But again, there are some churches where that's the way they do it. You know, sort of like, if you think the Lord wants to use you in a gift of the Spirit, you've got to go and check it out with the elders first, all right? Now, all these things are examples of a leadership which has got totally the wrong idea a leadership that is not allowing the freedom for people to grow individually in the Lord. It's what I call the whole big men and plebs syndrome, isn't it? As soon as you get big men and plebs, as soon as you've got this divide between the leaders and the led, you know, it's not like these are the churches again where, um, you know, like you go to the meetings and there's all the elders out the front. All the elders out the front sitting there in a semicircle. They're not doing anything, they're just part of the meeting, like everyone else, but they're all, all, you know, all out the front. I mean, they've got everything but neon signs. Elder, <laughs> flashing on and off, you see. And of course, what that is doing, what are you back to? You're back to the old priest and layperson, you know, the old, old false teaching, you know, where you've got a priesthood that does everything and the rest of you basically just sit in your pews and do exactly what you're told, right? Now, anything like that, <coughs> goes against everything that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that leaders are there to show people how to grow and to release them into the freedom of growing up in the Lord, not keeping them as forever children, not daring to make a move without checking it out with an elder first. And of course, we don't have that here, <laughs> all right? There is freedom here. Because what we're wanting to do is to simply give people everything that they need in order to grow. We don't want to have this kind of, uh, you know, these chains of authority around people because it isn't what the Bible teaches. So good leadership is going to be an example and it's going to give people space. Space to do what the leadership is teaching they ought to do. All right. Now, obviously, leadership's going to step in if it's really needed, if things are going wrong. But we want people to have the space to grow. But having said that, leaders must also avoid the trap of virtually just letting everyone get on with it. I mean, again, there are some churches, all right, where the leaders are there, but it's all but a technicality. Everyone's doing what they want. I mean, everything is absolutely chaos. Problems are being ignored, and basically, you know, the eldership have got their feet up or their minds on something else, and, and, and it's, it's kind of a pandemonium. So if you've got a wishy-washy eldership, that is also going to be a bad thing, because, you know, kind of Satan gets in and then no one can grow. So if you've got authoritarian 
elders, you know, sort of like, you know, tight control on every aspect of someone's life, that person can't grow because the leadership won't let them, all right? But on the other hand, if you've got a very hands-off, wishy-washy eldership where we basically don't care what you do as, you know, as long as you stay out of our hair, uh, or churches where it, it literally takes three or four weeks to get a couple of hours with one of the elders if you need help. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? You know, it's what we call filofax Christianity here, all right? Um, if you've got a wishy-washy anything goes, then people can't grow in a church like that. For the simple reason, there's such pandemonium you know, that every time you try and stand up straight in the Lord, you know, sort of someone with a bee in their bonnet plows you down, you know, in their rush to uh, go and sort of fulfill the last thing that God told them or something like that. And it's chaos. It's chaos. So a balance has got to be maintained, all right? A balance. Paul showed people how to do it. And then he gave them the space in order to do just that. He says, right, okay, I've shown you what to do, now do it. All right, so the first thing you need is a leadership, which is good, but that's not enough. Now, why isn't that enough? Well, it's not enough because you also need good people, good people. Now, I'm not saying good people, in the, you know, we're all sinners. What I'm meaning by this is that a church can have the best eldership in the world, but if the people in that church aren't responding to that leadership and to what the Bible says, then what's the point? You see, it's two things. You can have leaders who are really being faithful in the Lord. But if the people they're, lead, if the people they're leading aren't faithfully following, well, it's dead, isn't it? It's no good at all. Now, I'm going to be dealing with rebellion in a few moments, but here, what I'm talking about, are people who kind of, it's not that they're gross rebels or anything like that, but th this incredible resistance that some people have to growing <laughs> in the Lord. These are people that they'll readily turn to leadership, all right, and they'll be helped, in a sense. But years later, they're still coming with exactly the same problems. They're being given exactly the same advice from the Bible, and they're still going away and doing absolutely nothing about it, is he? Now that's what I mean by resistant people. They get in a muddle, so they go and get the help they need, and they're shown from the Bible how to get out of that muddle. And so they go away and they don't do, you know, a thing. They, they just carry on. I mean, I've seen this so many times in people. People say they've got a real problem with resentment, all right? And, and years later, you know, there's still this real problem with resentment, but they still haven't gone and said sorry to the people who they've been rotten to. And they wonder why they haven't made any progress. They're not going to make any progress. You only make progress when you actually do what the Bible says. And some people are just resistant in regards to it all. Lazy. Lazy is the word. They can't be bothered. They're really happy talking about their problems. And they seem to be quite happy receiving advice. But where they're not happy is the moment they leave you, and then they don't do anything. And so then a couple of months later, they're back with the same problem, only now it's worse, you see. And this goes on and on and on. And people, they'll listen, but they won't actually get around to doing what the Bible says. Just go to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul, Paul talks about uh, this kind of thing there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And... Uh, 
he's writing to a church here. In the first three verses, he says, But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. And even yet you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like ordinary men? Now here, Paul is writing to a church that he's also spent lots of time with. But this church, the people are not growing up. I mean, they're 15-year-olds in nappies because they are not responding to what they've been told. And Paul laments over them. He says, for heaven's sake, all this mess that you're in, you should have overcome this mess ages ago. You should be mature in the Lord, but you're not. You're still children. Can you see? And it's precisely because there always seem to be people who they'll talk, they'll listen, they'll get attention, even go to Bible studies or whatever. But at rock bottom, they won't actually get up the next morning and do what they've got to do. That always gets put off. And therefore, they never, ever grow. And it's like one thing that we need to realise is that it is no use expecting other people to put more energy and effort into your Christian life than you do. And there have been many times, well, I mean, you know, just for us, but I'm sure everywhere, that, that loads of people who lead in churches have found the same thing. That there are some people that because you're an elder, they expect you to live their Christian life. You see what I mean? You've got to do it all. It doesn't work. You've got to finally do it yourself. There's no escaping it. You might get advice or whatever. You might find out what the Bible says about this and that. But finally, eventually, you're the one who's got to go away and do it. And if you don't do it, you'll get nowhere. And the problems will just remain. And, uh, and what Paul says to them here, he said, look, I'm not with you, so I want you to work even harder all right, is he says now, work out your own salvation. Now, there's no one else who can do it. If you don't work out your salvation, there is no one else who can. Now, these verses we did in the salvation series, all right, and we did them in great detail, um, and we can see them here in the context in which they're written. And um, Paul is not here saying, that you get to heaven by hard work. When he says, work out your own salvation, he is not talking about getting to heaven by your own works, all right? Uh, in the salvation series, we saw basically that salvation, because the word salvation means to be rescued, and there are a thousand things that we need rescuing from, all right? And the power of sin and the penalty of sin are just a couple of examples. Now, what we saw is that salvation has three aspects, all right? A quick revision of the salvation series. Those who haven't heard it, it is vital that you hear it, all right? Because, you know, you'll never really understand what the Bible says until you've done the salvation series. And what we saw there is that salvation's got three aspects to it, the past and the present and the future, because that's how we exist in time. Now, in regards to past salvation, that is being set free, or that is being saved from the penalty of sin. 
And it quite simply means that if you've accepted Jesus and you're born again, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You will not go to the lake of fire, ever, ever, ever. And the Bible calls it justification. Justified. It's justified, never sinned. And that is past salvation. The moment you accept Jesus as your saviour, you're born again and you are set free, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And that's in the past, it can't be undone, it's once and for all. So anyone here, everyone here who's accepted Jesus are safe. They will never ever go to lake of fire because you've accepted Jesus as saviour, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. You have been justified by faith, that's what the Bible says. But salvation also has a present tense and a future tense, all right? And present tense salvation is being saved not from the penalty of sin, that's been done. If you're born again, that's all over, you're going to heaven. But it's being saved from the power of sin, which is entirely different. And that's what happens down here. That is what is happening every day in our lives. That is the ongoing process of following Jesus. It's being set free bit by bit from the power of sin in our lives. And that is what the Bible calls sanctification or holiness. Being set apart for God to do what he wants, rather than for Satan to do what he wants, as it were, through you. Okay. And then salvation has a future aspect, a future tense. Because one day, when we die, we're going to be set free from the very presence of sin. Because sin dwells in our body, and when you die, you lose this body, and then you're going to get a new one, and that new one hasn't got a sinful nature in it. And that is what the Bible calls being glorified. It's glorification, all right? So what you've got is that if you've accepted Jesus as Saviour, then you have been saved from the penalty of sin, past salvation, already, you know, all over with. Nothing can change that. And it means that when you die, you're going to be glorified, and you're going to be set free from the presence of sin. But what Paul is talking about here, when he says work out your own salvation, what's he talking about? He's talking about the day-to-day -day Christian life. He's talking about the ongoing process whereby God is setting us free or saving us from the power of sin in our lives. It's got nothing to do with the penalty of sin here. And Paul is saying work out your own salvation. It's the day-to-day dying to self so that Jesus can live through us. Remember, we've seen again and again, and particularly in the Salvation series, that holiness is not what we do in that sense. We can't be holy, but Jesus is holy. And if Jesus lives through us, then being saved from the power of sin is going to start happening. But that's only going to happen as we die off, as we deny ourselves the less of me, the more of Jesus. And that here is what, Jesus, uh, what Paul is talking about. So he's saying, look, if you want to be set free from the power of sin, if you want to follow Jesus and be faithful, then you've got to work at it. And so he says, look, work out your own salvation. Now, in the Greek, this, this, this word work out in the Greek is katagazomai. Uh, so when Paul says work out, he actually wrote katagazomai. It means work out. And it means to effect something by toil. <coughs> by toil. It means to work hard at something. All right? 
And Paul here is talking about the whole area of life whereby, just like Jesus, when he came down from heaven and became a man, we turn our backs on ourselves, we put ourselves laughed, we humble ourselves, and we put others first. We serve each other. We forget about me, 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 and we concern ourselves with Jesus and people around us. Now, that is the aspects of the Christian life that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about everything from chapter 1, verse 27, down to chapter 2, verse 18. That is what he's talking about. And he tells them, work hard at it. He says, work at it. Work out your own salvation. By your hard work, bring what I am teaching you into being in your own lives. So you're not just believing it, you're not just accepting it as being true because it's in the Bible, but you're beginning to experience it. It's becoming a reality in your life, bit by bit, day by day. All right. So therefore, if Paul is saying to them, look, you work hard at it, and then it'll happen, um, does that mean that Paul, is he talking, just talking about self-effort here? Is he saying, well, look, if you work really hard, reform yourself? Is that all he's talking about? Well, no, it's not. Because he goes on to say, not just work out your own salvation, but he says, for God is at work in you. Is he? Paul's not leaving it at saying, you've got to work hard and that's all there is to it. He's saying, you work hard, you work it out because God is at work in you. Is he? So Paul says, work out your own salvation, work out your own progressive freedom from the power of sin. You work that out in your life because God is at work in your life. And what Paul is saying is quite simply this. He says, look, work out of you what God has already worked in. Is he? He's saying God's already worked it in you. Do you remember verses 1 to 4? The things we have in Christ Jesus. Right. Paul says, look, God has worked everything you need into you. So therefore you work it out. Now what is it that he's worked in us? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is in each one of us. Just go to Colossians, which is just after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1, and um, we'll, we'll start, uh, we'll just read from verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Jesus suffered. If we follow him, we're going to suffer. Simple as that. Of which I became a minister according to the divine office which was given for me, uh, to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. Now, in the Bible, when Paul talks about a mystery... Mysterian in the Greek. What it means isn't something that you don't know, it's something that you didn't know but now you do. It's something that has only just been revealed. Alright? Um, it's new. It's new. God has never brought this forth before. It's a new thing that you can understand. All right? And he says that to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. And he says, him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man mature in Christ. What is maturity? It's Jesus living through you more and more. For this I toil, he says, look, for this I toil, striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. So here, in Colossians, Paul's saying, what's the Christian life? He says, it's Jesus in you. Jesus living through you is the Christian life. But Paul says, so in order, in order to make this work in my life, and in order to help it work in your life, he says, I, I toil. He says, I strive with all the energy that Paul has. No, which he mightily inspires within me. You see the point. God has done everything in us needed. Therefore, we need to actually work it out by continuously and more and more denying our own sinful self, denying ourselves and following Jesus, then we're allowing more and more Jesus and his life to come through us. Can you see? And the working at it, the working it out, is all the time denying ourselves. When Jesus said, if any man shall come after me, let him deny himself and pick up the cross. Now, when you pick up a cross, what do you do with it? You take it somewhere so you can be nailed to it and die on it. Can you see? It's death. It's dying to self. Uh, go back into Colossians, or forward into Colossians again. And in chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, And we'll start reading from verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He goes on, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Immoral thoughts, impurity, passion, evil, blah, blah, blah. And then in verse 7, he says, In these you once walked. And in verse 8, but he says, Now put them all away. And in verse uh, 10, uh, verse 9, he says, Don't lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old nature and have put on the new nature, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And what Paul is saying there. He says, look, you have a new nature. When you were born again, a completely new you came into being, all right, because Jesus came to live in you. And what Paul is saying, the more you deny your sinful self, the more you will be able to live in the new self. And what is the new self? It's Jesus who lives through you. And it's like I've said before, that all of us, we've got two natures in us. I mean, for me, there's an old sin nature version, BJ. But 20 years ago, when I was born again, I got a new Jesus version, BJ. Is he? Because Jesus is in me now. I've got a sin nature in me, and I've got Jesus in me. And because I've got Jesus in me, I'm completely new. But I can live in the old nature. I can go with the sinful nature, or I can go with the Jesus bit of me, if you like, and let Jesus come through me. And it's only as we more and more die to that old self, 
day by day, that the new self, our new nature, Jesus living through us, will really come through. Uh, go back into Ephesians, where, where Paul says something very similar. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. And he says, put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. You see, there's a new you in there. The old you is still there, hasn't gone anywhere, as we all know. I know that my old me hasn't gone anywhere at all. My sinful nature is still there. But there's a new me and a new you. And the more we die to self, then the more that new nature in us, Jesus, comes through us and lives in us. So what Paul is saying, he says, look, Jesus lives in you. He's saying, right, so let Jesus come out. Work at it. Put a bit of effort into it. And the more you deny yourself, the more Jesus, and therefore this new nature, is going to come through. And you will find that being saved from the power of sin, bit by bit, starts to become an actual reality in your experience. If you just go to John 14, though, because obviously I've been homing in on the fact that uh, Paul here is reminding them that Jesus lives in, there, in them. And I just want to show you very quickly that that's only a bit of the truth. If you find John 14, we can see from what Paul is saying that he's reminding of the fact that Jesus lives in them. All right, now in John 14, let's just read verse 15 and uh, 15 to 17. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that ha that's how you know if you love Jesus. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will, to quote. Don Francisco. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor, defence lawyer, all right, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here Jesus is saying to the disciples, look, the Holy Spirit is going to be in you. And indeed, because we're born again, he is. So it's not just that Jesus lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us as well. Now then, still in John 14, just go on to verse 23. And Jesus says this, If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So what are we seeing? Is it just that Jesus lives in us? No. Jesus lives in us, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, and here we see the Father lives in us. The triune God in his entirety lives in each one of us. And Paul says, right, work out your own salvation. He said, that's your salvation. God is my salvation. The triune God lives in you. So Paul says, right, let him out. Work at letting God out in your life. But we've got to work at getting ourselves out of the way. You see, that's the point. That's the point. Jesus lives in us, the Father lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us. You think, no problem. Well, there is a problem. Us. We're in the way. And we have to be removed in order for the life 
of God to come out of us. And that is the ongoing following Jesus and living in obedience to the scripture. Because if you do, you'll bit by bit be killing yourself off. That's fundamentally what it boils down to. If you live in obedience to the Bible, your sinful nature is going to be being cut off at every point. Because when you live according to the teaching of the Bible, it gives no room for your sinful nature. Can you see? John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. This is it. Obedience to the Bible enables the Lord to work in us in such a way that he's literally killing us off. The old nature is getting killed off bit by bit by bit and the new nature is coming through more and more and more. Now, when Paul has said this, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll come on to that in a moment. And he says, for God is at work in you. All right, for God is at work in you. Now, what does he say God is doing in you? What is this work that God is doing in you? Well, it's this. He says, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there are always two things. First of all, you make up your mind and then you do it. All right? So before anything gets done, you decide to do it and then it gets done. All right? Now, what Paul is saying, the nature of this work that God is doing in you is that he's making up your mind and then he's going to make sure that you do it. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is not only going to enable you to do it, he's going to enable you to have the will to do it. Can you see the point? God is at work in you both to will and to work um, for his good pleasure. Now, this thing about will. Now, does this mean we haven't got free will? I was saying to Julian, you know, today that, oh, you know, wouldn't life be simpler if God overrode our free will? But, but life is so complicated because he doesn't. You know, he won't. He respects us too much. We won't be human beings. We've got free will. God's got free will. We've got free will. That's just the way it is. But what we're seeing here is that if we genuinely decide by an act of the will to go with Jesus at any point, then God will reinforce and strengthen that act of the will that we've taken. Now, can you see the point there? God is at work in us to will. If I say, yes, Jesus, I'm going with what you want here, all right, then no matter how tough it gets, when I want to back out, I think, oh, no, this is too tough for me. If my will is set on doing God's will, then God will strengthen that resolve that I've got. Now, can you see? That's the only explanation I've got for how I'm still a Christian after 20 years. It honestly is. Or not necessarily still a, you know, a Christian, but you know, after 20 years of going the way God has led me. It's because God stiffens that resolve. He strengthens it. All right. And often, in following the Lord, what we need to do is, is that we need just every now and then say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want. But Lord, I'm also willing that when I'm not willing, that you make me willing. Is he? So God is at work to will. God is working on your will. And it's a twofold thing. When your will is right, 100% with God, and remember Jesus himself prayed, Lord, not my will but yours be done. In any issue, anything that God requires of you, if you are genuinely saying, Lord, not my will but yours be done, then God will strengthen that will. He'll strengthen your will. So you can keep going when normally you couldn't. He'll reinforce it. And then the second aspect of it is that all of us, we come to points where we're not willing. Now then, often, often, many Christians, that's when they fall away. Or they just become 
you know, sort of like lukewarm Christians, don't they? They're doing great, and then God requires something of them they're not willing to give. Is he? God goes too far. Lord, you've gone too far now, all right? Now then, obviously, if you're really not willing, you can fall away, and a lot of people do. We've seen that here, haven't we? You know, we've seen Christians have gone on with the Lord, and then God requires something of them. They're not willing, and so they're out of it, aren't they? That is the way God works. However, if your heart is really right with God and you've really said, Lord, I know that there are going to be times when what you want of me, I'm not willing to give. Lord, when that happens, I am willing for you to make me willing. All right? So he'll bash you until you're willing. Can you see? So God is at work in us, one, to will and also to work, to work. So God wills in us and he works in us. So... But here, in the Greek, this, this verb to work is energio, energio, and it's the word we get energy from, if you energise something. And what Paul is saying is that God will energise our genuine effort. Here's the point. If that effort is genuine, because you love the Lord, God will energise that, you know, all that you're trying to do that effort to strive after holiness. Um, you know, think of it, I mean, you know, I'm, I don't do this often, but, you know, I mean, to get from the Enterprise down to the planet Vulcan, you've got to energise, haven't you? You see? And the power comes through and down they go in the transporter, you see, energise. And the point is, our faithfulness, if we're faithful and say, I am going to be obedient to the Lord, then our faithfulness will be energised and the power will come through. And Jesus will start to live through you in different areas of your life, all right? But it, our motive must be, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. That must be the motive. Um, it's quite possible, because I've done this many, many times, to really put effort into serving the Lord and expect God to energise it. When your real motive is that, won't people think I'm spiritual? Well, that won't wash. Can you see? God won't energise that. He'll just leave you to it. You know, he'll just leave you to it. Our effort will only be energised by God if our motive in that effort is for his good pleasure. We're doing it for him. We're not doing it for someone else. We're not doing it for our own ego, we're doing it for him. And where our motives are wrong, he'll bash you. <laughs> God bashes me a lot, this is why it works, it's discipline, isn't it? All right? But can you see the point of what, God is, uh, of what Paul is actually saying here? Now then, I've got to say more about the bashing here. Because why, when he says, work out your own salvation, for God is working you, blah, 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 why does Paul put in the middle with fear and trembling. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why on earth does he do that? If you keep, keep your finger in Philippians, but just go back into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's see this, this fear and trembling in Paul's life. And, and Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Paul 
he didn't only tell the Philippians to live in fear and trembling, Paul was living his own life in fear and trembling. Now, what is this fear and trembling? Go to 1 John. You can, well, you, yeah, you can if you like, but of course we're going to keep going back to Philippians, but yes, if you want to take your finger out of Philippians, you certainly can. 1 John 4, alright, we're asking, why does Paul talk about fear and trembling, and why did Paul live in fear and trembling? Um, 1 John 4, verse 17, he says, In this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Uh, incidentally, there's John saying it. As he is, so are we in this world. You know, John's saying, you know what Jesus was like because you've read my gospel. You're right, let's us be like him as well. And that's exactly the point we're seeing in Paul, isn't it? Jesus is in you, so be like him. Let him out. But he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So if perfect love casts out fear, why on earth is Paul saying here, um, you know, that, that, you know, you people make sure that you're working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Well, in Proverbs 1 verse 7, don't turn to it, alright, the proverb there is that the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, and serving the Lord with fear and trembling, it's not talking about, you know, sort of like the kind of, um, you know, sort of like terror when you've, or the fear and trembling when you've just read, you know, Children of the Corn, and you think, oh, are they coming to get me? You know, a Stephen King novel. It's not that kind of terror and fear at all. It's the reverential fear of God. What the Bible means by this is, is holding him in awe. It's refusing to play games with him, because he is God. Do you see what I mean? Um, I mean, think of, if you were at a good school, and if you were brought up well, then when you were about, say, 13, 14, 15, you were in fear and trembling of your headmaster. Is he? It, it's that sort of thing. Knowing, if I step over the line, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to be sorted. That is what the Bible means by serving God in fear and trembling. We've seen that the way the Lord feels about us is intimate tenderness and love. We saw this two or three studies ago when we were doing chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Yeah, Jesus is intimate tenderness and love. He'll never hurt us. That's true. He's our closest friend. But here's the point. If you mess with him, then watch out. You see, if we mess with him, he is going to sort us. Now, not loss of salvation, nothing to do with that at all. But if we get out of order, then God is going to sort us down here, and we're going to get sorted out, you see. God is a perfect, loving father, all right? But a perfect, loving father is not afraid to take hold of the wooden spoon, or whatever it might be, and lay into one of his children's backsides if it is so needed. Here's a. Um, you know, it's sort of like we often talk about the blessing of the laying on of hands. Well, I mean, it's what I call the laying on of hands at the other end. 
Um, and God will lay holy hands on you at the other end if need be. Can you see? God will sort us out because a father is going to discipline his children and he's going to draw lines. And if we go over those lines, then he is going to be after us. Can you see the point? We cannot start messing with God. God is not mocked. We will reap exactly what we sow. That's what Paul says when he writes to the Galatian Christians. He says you can be all holy, you can be all spiritual, you can be all charismatic, you can be all saints even here. But, he says, God is not mocked. If you as a Christian get up to no good, God is going to sort you. You will reap exactly what you sow. And so Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, he says, that is why you've got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This isn't something, oh, oh yeah, well, let's get on with it. We are talking about a holy God who loves us very much, who will only do things for our own good. But then we're talking about a holy God who knows that sometimes for our own good he's got to bash us. <laughs> is he? As ultimately every good father has to do with his children when they get out of order. And that is why there Paul says, look, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. He says, work out what God has worked into you. He says, but do it with fear and trembling. Because he says, in the process, if you start taking the mick, then God will get the wooden spoon out. All right, so, so remember, it is God that we're dealing with. And the fact that he's our closest friend, the fact that he's tender and loving towards us let's not for one moment rest on our laurels and say well therefore because he loves me it doesn't matter what I'm like because it does and it's because God loves us so much that he's desperately concerned about what we're like and he will deal with us if we get out of order so basically in those verses what Paul is saying look he says work out your own salvation no one else can do it for you Leaders can't, your friends can't, we can all help each other, fellowship is an absolutely essential part of it. But finally, one way or the other, every individual Christian has got to work out their own salvation for themselves. And one of the things that we're seeing here, and I'm delighted to see it here, is the way that if there are people who in the final analysis are along for the ride, they don't last very long. And I'm thrilled about that. Because you'll get nowhere if you're just along for the ride. Paul says you've got to be stuck in to your own Christian life 100%. Now in verse 14, Paul then says, right, now what are the practicalities of this? He's already given a low that we've seen in previous studies. But in verse 14, he now takes it further and he says, look, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Alright? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. 
Even if I'm to be poured out as a libation, you know, Paul's facing death, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling and questioning. You know, here are commandments. He says, this is part of working out your own salvation. All right. Now then, first of all, grumbling. Do all things without grumbling, or more accurately in the Greek, murmuring. Murmuring. Do all things without murmuring. Now then, this Greek word, murmuring, is gonguzmos. That's the word, gonguzmos. And it means muttering. Muttering. It, muttering. To mutter. To mutter. Or possibly to witter, whatever way you want to view it. All right. Now then, what we've got here is that in the Greek, it's what's called an onomatopoeic word. Now, I'll explain that. If you have a word that is onomatopoeic, it's a word that sounds like the thing it's describing. For instance, tinkling. Tinkling. That is an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like the thing it's describing. Um, a symbol going... Crash, that is an onomatopoeic word. Indeed, the English word mutter is onomatopoeic. It sounds like the thing it's describing. Mutter, 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 mutter. See? See? <laughs> Muttering is what it actually means. And it denotes, it denotes the saying of something negative or destructive. This is what it means in the Greek. The saying of something negative or destructive in a low tone, secretively in private, rather than loudly, openly in public. Now that is what the Greek word means. That is murmuring. Now then, let me tell you, we're back to the infamous phone calls here, aren't we? When the phones start going, oh, mutter, 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 mutter. Do you know Robert mutter, 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 mutter? And then mutter, 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 Beresford, mutter, mutter, see? And the phones start going. You see, these are the people who just aren't happy. They're, they're not happy. You see that they're mutter, they're murmuring. They're never happy. And you usually find, in fact, you find 99% of the time that what they're unhappy about is how they've been treated. Easy. This Greek word, gonguzmos, all right, it means mutter, but there's an actual Greek word that we get from this, and it's gong. We get the word gong which is another onomatopoeic word, gong, all right? And I'm not going to tell the joke that you're all thinking of, all right? Um, <laughs> right, oh, if you're not thinking about it, no problem. And you'll remember in 1 Corinthians and chapter 13, Paul talks about love. It, you know, he's dealing with all the gifts of the Spirit, all right? And then he talks about love. And he says, if, if, if I speak in tongues and have not love, he says, I'm a crashing gong. And what Paul's doing there is he's saying, look, you can be as spiritual as a light, but if you haven't got love, it's a waste of time. Tongues without love, waste of time. Healing without love, waste of time. Word of knowledge without love, waste of time. Bible teaching without love, waste of time. Visions of rice puddings without love, absolute waste of time. <laughs> a rather loose translation, I grant you, you see. And, and of course, the point is that when you've got, okay, these people, they're, they're going around, and, and as I say, it's mutter, 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 all right? It is the exact opposite of love. 
This muttering is always done in the dark. It's always, it's, it's, it's the whispering campaigners, isn't it? And it's all done in the dark. It's all done furtively. Very, very furtively. And you remember that last week we saw that to be in fellowship, in 1 John, it, it talks about light. If we, if we live in the light, as he is in the light, and muttering and all this discontent and all this chagrin that goes about is always done in the dark. And you will usually find that it is people who have got gripes in regards to themselves. They're not happy about this, they're not happy about that. I've been treated badly, why aren't I getting this? Why aren't I being looked after better? Is it? And that is what Paul here is talking about. He says murmuring, he says put it away. Because after all, if we thought about ourselves less, would we not murmur less? Would we not be all a lot more satisfied if we didn't think about ourselves so much? And to stop thinking about ourselves is half of what Paul is dealing with in this whole issue. Forget about yourselves, he's saying. Think on Jesus and think on the needs of other people. And it's like in regards here, because we don't want murmuring and muttering in this fellowship. We want everything out in the open. And, uh, and we've said it before, but all I can do is to say it again until eventually it registers. If someone's got something to say, then come to Robert and I and say it. And say it. You know, but there is a new rule that we're going to introduce, all right? And the basic rule is this, and this is based on unfortunate experience of the last few weeks. In future, if anyone comes to Robert or myself, okay, um, and there's something they want to say, and, and, and they're angry, and they, they give us a blasting, all right, then what we're going to do is to say, now, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa you might well have a good point. What you're going to say may be important for us to hear, and there may be things to be put right. But we want you to go away and calm down and repent of getting all up in the air. It's called spiritual parasending, all right? Go away and land, and then when you can come back controlled with love in your heart and the grace of the Lord, then tell us. Now we put this into practice a little while ago and we lost a load of people. But my goodness, that is what we're going to do. In James it says, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's as simple as that. And even if you've got something that you think is something that genuinely is wrong and needs putting right, it is no use pitching into us. Because the very fact that there's anger flying around negates the whole thing. So, you know, when people come in and want to blast us, and that does happen sometimes, people just want to blast us, all right? We're not going to be blasted anymore. We're going to say, go away and come back and see us next week when you're nice and calm. And once you've done that, then we will talk. Here's he. And so Paul says, look, do everything without murmuring, all right? He says, let... Get that away from you completely. All this going around, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, behind everyone's backs. If you've got something to say, say it. It's as simple as that. Get everything out in the open. But also, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Or questioning. Now then, more accurately, in the Greek, disputings. Disputings, all right? Uh, the Greek word here is dialogismos, and it means an inward, you know, 
to reason inwardly, is what it means. But Paul here is, is not saying that it's wrong to ask questions. Genuine questioning is to be encouraged, and we do encourage it in this fellowship, all right? Um, we're not talking about sort of like, just do as you're told and don't ask questions. That's not what we're talking about here. Question away. The more questioning, the more you'll learn. You don't get any answers if you don't ask questions. No problem there. But what Paul's talking about here are the, what you can only call the awkward customers. The awkward customers. He's talking about the uncooperative people. The willful people. Now, these people, alright, who, who question, alright, or they dispute, their problem isn't actually what you've asked of them. It will look that way. You ask something of them and they'll have a problem with it. But their problem isn't actually what you've asked of them. Their problem in reality is that you have dared to require something of them at all. That is their real problem. They feel impinged upon. Is he? They feel, wow, this authority thing is going a bit too far now, isn't it? Well, I can't do what I like. Oh, well, that's, 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 that's not what I came to this church for, as it were. No. These people are uncooperative because they're willful in their heart. And as with grumbling, it's a rebellion thing. These are people that, quite honestly, it's the fact that you require something of them that is the problem that they've got. Uh, they're, quite, they're touchy. They're touchy people. You've got to watch yourself with them all the time. They're desperately, easily offended. And you've got it's treading on eggshells with them. And Paul says, no, look, absolutely none of this. You know, not daring to open your mouth because they'll be up in the air and oh, it's not fair and they'll be disputing and a thousand arguments against everything that you're saying, irrespective of whether what you're saying is biblical or not. They'll just argue against it and they'll resent that you've said it, blah, blah, blah. And Paul says, no, we're not going to have any of that at all. And uh, these are the people who are very quick to say, I've been hurt. Well, what I say is, poor sausages. <laughs> the truth of the matter isn't that they've been hurt at all. Pride has been hurt. This is the point. Pride has been hurt. With all of us, it's part of the process of being part of a church. We've all got our touchy points. Of course we have, because we've all got that bit of us that, that oh no, God's not going to go for that next, is he? You know, we, we've always got a bit we're protecting, haven't we? You know, we've always got our United Nations forces protecting one bit of us, haven't we? And, and sort of like, uh, no, 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 it's safe. God ain't going to do anything, you know, God ain't going to do anything about that yet. And then he does, and he prods you, and ouch, it hurts. And of course, at a time like that, at a time like that, okay, uh, it's not God prodding you, it's whoever he used. You see? And so you want to get your own back, and how dare you do that, and, and you know, stuff like that. You see, God's always prodding us. Well, he's always prodding me, at any rate, you see. And uh, so, therefore, it's no use, you know, being, being touchy. And in times like that, we say, oh, well, we're hurt. We're not. Our pride is hurt. Our pride is hurt. There's a difference between someone being hurt. If you're horrible to someone, you're hurting them, and that's not on. That's not on. But a lot of people, what they say is, I've been desperately hurt. What they mean is, I've been corrected. That's what they mean. <laughs> I've been corrected. I've had something pointed out to me, but I don't accept it. See? 
And so in order to justify themselves, they've got to kick the stink up. And hence you get Paul writing and he says, now look, you know, do everything without this grumbling and questioning. He says it's rebellion. He says, lay all that down. Work at laying that down. Bite your tongue. When you've done it, say sorry. Get it right with God really quickly. And that is, but, and, and the more you do that, the more Jesus, your new nature, will start to come out of you. Work out your own salvation. This is part of what it is. And then down in verse 15, you know, he's saying that you may be blameless um, children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. And what Paul's saying here is that, look, all, all this stuff, that's what the world's like. That's the sin of the world. He says, we're not supposed to be like that. He says, it's darkness, but we have the light of the world living in us. Jesus lives in us. And what he's saying is, look, he says, people, you can't go out into that world and hold fast the word of life, all right, uh, if you're not living what you're speaking. It's no use being touchy. It's no use having it in for people. It's no use being someone who's impossible to work with. That's, that's no good. Because as soon as you open your mouth and say, I'm a Christian, well, the world, the non-Christians who are looking on, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to take no notice of it at all. And the whole point is, people will not listen if what we are speaks louder than what we're saying to them. Can you see? So Paul says, right, be blameless. You know, be blameless, hold fast, the you know, this word of life. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Work out your own salvation. Why give glory to your Father in heaven? Because the good deeds are your Father in heaven working through you. It's not what you're doing. You're working out God's works in you. And your life is changing. And then in verse 16, he says uh, that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. <laughs> what Paul's saying is that um, if, if, people aren't, if, if people aren't coming on to this maturity, then the leadership, they're, you know, they're labouring in vain. What's the point? If Christians aren't growing up, what's the point of leading a church, say, of people for 20 years, and after 20 years, they're still baby Christians, as most churches are? What's the point? Paul says that is to labour in vain. It's crazy. Then, verse 17 and verse 18, he then talks about the fact that for all he knew he could have been executed the day after. And he's talking about rejoicing. He's talking about rejoicing. Now, can you see, here Paul's saying, look, I might die at any minute. Rejoice with me because of our wonderful Jesus. I might die tomorrow. He says, rejoice with me. Now, what a contrast to people who do all things with grumbling and questioning. What a contrast to murmuring. What a contrast to disputing. Paul rejoicing, even in the light of the fact that he might possibly have died at any time. And you see, the difference between Paul and the people that he's talking about, all right, um, is quite simply this. The difference is self-obsession or Jesus-obsession. And everything in Philippians, what's it been? Jesus denied himself. He gave it, he humbled himself. It's, it's give up self, forget about self. You're not half as important as you think. Oh, yes, I am. No, you're not. <laughs> All right. It's forget about yourself. And yet the people that Paul's correcting when he says do all things without murmuring and disputing, those people, what they have in common is they are self-obsessed. They can't stop thinking about themselves. 
And self-obsession is the exact opposite to growing in the Lord. Can you see the contrast? Here's Paul facing death. Is he self-obsessed? Now he's saying, rejoice with me because of how wonderful Jesus is. And yet the people he's written about, what are they? Well, the slightest thing they don't like. Oh, oh how dare they? How, oh, oh. They're obsessed with themselves. That's half the problem. Christianity is the opposite for, uh, with being obsessed with yourself. And then in verses 19 down to 24, and we'll just do this very, very quickly, uh, you know, Paul, Paul says that, you know, I want to send old Timothy to you soon because he wanted to send Timothy so Timothy could come back to him in prison and see him and give him a first-hand account of how they all are. Because, I mean, Paul, he, he longs to catch up on what's been happening. And what he says is he said, I have no one like him who will genuinely be anxious for your welfare. They all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And Paul there laments the lack of everything he's been talking about, even in Christians who are doing similar work to him. A lot of the time, Paul he found that people in the teams that he was leading, they weren't 100% for the Lord. They were out of their own interests, and often Paul got deserted by, you know, his ministry team would desert him. It'd get too hot for him, and they'd be off, because they were looking after their own interests, and not the interests of the Lord, and not the interests of the churches. They were still putting themselves first. And then he goes on to say that Timothy uh, worked with him, and he's, he says that Timothy worked with me as a son with a father. Now, what a beautiful way of working with someone. His Paul, a leader of churches. There's Timothy, and they, they work together. And Paul says it's like father and son. Now, isn't that a far cry from the professionalism you see amongst Christian ministers, so-called today, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Like a father and like a son. It's family, not big leaders all getting together. It was intimate. There was, it was a, a far cry from, as I say, this wretched professionalism um, that we've got in in the church today and uh, and then just just to end verses 25 through to verse 30 he just sort of you know he's talking about Epaphroditus the bloke who bought him the financial gift and he nearly died on the way and so Paul says look I'm going to send him back to you he belongs at home he's been through an awful lot okay and uh, if, if he's at home with you he'll be okay <clears throat> and Paul said receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete your service to me. And Paul says, look, I want you to honour this man. He said, look what, he didn't put himself first, and it nearly cost him his life. And I said, he said, I want you to honour such men. And, and it's like, Paul here, was he just taking what Epaphroditus had done for granted? No. I mean, he, he felt in his debt. He was thankful. He was grateful. There was no taking it for granted. None of that at all. Paul was extremely grateful for what Epaphroditus had done. And yet, don't we see in the Christian life, sadly, the way that there are Christians that when, when they get the prod that they are not willing to put right with God, the way they suddenly totally forget everything that's been done for them, there's no gratitude. There's no gratitude that people have helped them, served them. I mean, isn't this 
the perfect gentleman. Epaphroditus had bought Paul a gift at the risk of his own life. And Paul says, look, honour men like that. He says, hold them in esteem. They've earned respect. So you honour them. Paul was just so grateful for what had been done for him. Okay, right, so we leave it there, and then next time we go on to uh, chapter 3. And uh, I do suggest that uh, for the next study, all right, do bring seatbelts along and fasten them. It might upset some people.